I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is our exclusive podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Niall Fort to our podcast. Niall is a scholar, a minister, and an activist based at Princeton. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we've given a little teaser for our really great conversation that we had, uh, which will be on pbs.org and 13.org and, and your PBS station near you soon. But where we were cut off in the, in the half hour we did for air was this conversation about kind of the, the generations of activists following Dr. King. And you had described the Black Panthers as a movement that never in the eyes of the public at large had the power to affect legislative change. But what I wanted to, to ask you about was this generational nexus with the death of Congressman Lewis, you know, thinking about the big six and what we have today as a way to kind of further promote the cause of justice and to legislate that justice. And just wanted to continue that discussion with you about the next generation of civil rights and where you see it going. Sure. Um, Well, first, let me say, because I don't want to mischaracterize the Black Panther Party and their remarkable efforts. Um, When you look at a, they had a 10-point program. A part of their 10-point program was a free breakfast for children program. And that was basically about making sure that kids in the community had food on their stomach so that they can learn. It was a really basic idea. How can kids learn if they don't have food on their stomach? So now we see that the U.S. government has actually um, institutionalized free breakfast for children. (laughs) And so that's actually a really interesting way to think about their effect on governmental policy, which I think also goes unnoticed. But that's that's for another cool conversation between you and I. Um, So... First of all, I want to give my deepest condolences to the families and loved ones of John Lewis and also of C.T. Vivian, who we also recently lost. I mean, we're losing so many giants. And I just want to pause and just really sit with the gravity of what it means to live in the wake of such giants and folks who just sacrifice so much to make us possible, to make me possible. Um, I don't take that lightly. I don't take that for granted. Um, but to get to a little bit of your question, I mean, you had, you used the phrase that folks like Reverend Barber and even my advisor, Eddie Claude uses, which is the third reconstruction. Um, and I think that's, you know, a really interesting way of talking about this moment. Um, you know, so I, I was in Ferguson after white police officer Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown, 18 year old unarmed black teenager in Ferguson, Missouri. And it was an interesting, it's an interesting thing to think about the development of Black Lives Matter and the latest iteration of the Black freedom struggle from Ferguson till now. <clears throat> so in Ferguson, at least initially, a lot of the calls were um, to lock up Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson needs to be indicted and he needs to go to jail. He needs to be sentenced. That was one of at least the overwhelming demands from Ferguson. And then as time went on, uh, you see splinters, as you see in every movement. And now we arrive in 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's uh, death and Breonna Taylor and others. And we see uh, interesting conversation around the abolition of police. Um, And so a couple of things there. One is just noticing that movements are organic so that they don't stay stagnant. 
and that even within movements, we have contestation or we have fissures or we have disagreements and we have debates around what does it look like to affect change in American society. And so I think that this is a really cool way to think about the evolution of um, civil rights, human rights, you know, the efforts uh, for Black liberation, to think about moving from a primarily reformist movement where we were trying to get a police officer basically in jail to now thinking about, well, what's the primary role of police and do we want them as a part of the fabric of our communities and our societies? Um, and so I think there's interesting there. I mean, in the 60s, you had certain calls for uh, police protection, while you also had people like the Black Panther Party policing the police and doing cop watch programs. So even there, you saw this uh, fissure or this debate, and I think you see it even now. Um, and I think that's remarkable. Another thing that you see is the leadership of Black women, of Black queer women, of Black trans women. Um, these communities that were always very much a part of our movement, but also who were many way, in many ways sidelined or placed in the background or wholly excluded from the stories we would tell about the Black freedom struggle and about social movements in the U.S. more generally. So I mentioned in our conversation earlier, the Combahee River Collective. The Combahee River Collective was a Black feminist lesbian organization that did work in the 1970s um, and uh, you know, through the 1980s, wrote a remarkable statement called the Combahee River Collective. And they were the ones to introduce the term identity politics and thinking about how to form a set of politics from one's own identity. And so now you see, I think, the visibilization of that tradition really come to the fore. And I think that's really important because we can't put our struggle in the hands of one charismatic, usually Black man who's from a religious institution, a Dr. King or a Malcolm X. Um, while those figures are extremely important, uh, it's also important to think about deep democracy and people who are oftentimes excluded. So I think that's another thing that we're seeing that's a, that's a bit different. But I also want to say that the terrain has changed. This is not 1954, 55, when we're thinking about, you know, the lynching of Emmett Till. Uh, this is not 1965 with the passage of the Civil Rights, um, the Civil Rights Act, and of course the Voting Rights Act in 1964. So we've what I mean by that is we've passed legislation that at least legally was supposed to dramatically affect the conditions of African-Americans in this country. However, when we look at the actual data, when we look at the um, sort of voter suppression that's still happening in certain Southern states, when we look at the fact that in 2008, there was a housing crisis that almost and pretty much demolished the African-American middle class, which began to take rise in the aftermath of the 1960s movement. When you look at Black political leaders who have not been able to seriously challenge, let alone uh, abolish these vestiges of white supremacy that continue into Black communities, you see that we're on a new terrain. So we're on a new terrain politically, 
where you have not just calls for more black police or more women police, but you have a challenge to the concept, to the idea and to the role of policing itself. And you see it happening by so many formerly unsung heroes of our movements, from Black women, from people like uh, Brie Newsome, from you know people uh, all over the country who are who are rising up and 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 showing us that Black women and other people who are oftentimes excluded um, have a lot to say and are really really talented and skilled at transforming the country. I think I think that's important to know. For them. The quality of life for Black people in this country has um, statistically not improved and the pandemic exposed just how much it hadn't improved and, and how legislation had not um, solved the, the, the inequity uh, and, the, and, the, and the great uh, burden um, on uh, so many um, in this country who, who are suffering um, for, for you know, no reason other than they were born into suffering. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, it reminds me of something that Ella Baker spoke to, um, but certain other civil rights activists as well, uh, when they would say things like, and Martin Luther King echoed Ella Baker when he said this, now, what good is it to have the right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford a hamburger? <laughs> and this was closer to the end of Dr. King's life, and I think he was seeing the limits of civil rights legislation, the limits of Brown v. Board, the limits of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and that unless a broader transformation of the social and economic conditions, uh, you know, unless we have that, then we're just going to have a bunch of stuff on the books that aren't on our streets, that aren't in our schools, that are not in our communities. Um, and I, I think that's extremely important to remember. We need to remember that the 1963 March on Washington was a march for freedom and for jobs. To remember that the Poor People's Campaign was about linking exactly what you asked earlier in our conversation, questions of militarism and race and capitalism and jobs and labor and this sort of rainbow coalition of issues that can bring a lot of people together. So I think part of what you are pointing at is the contradiction or the limits of reform and legislation. Um, and that's precisely why it's important for us to have social movements. A lot of time there's this pressure uh, within social movements to come up with a policy. And I think that that's extremely important, but I also think that that can limit and constrain the possibilities that can come out of these types of protests. So let's remember, you know, I'm in academia, I'm a PhD student in African American studies and religion. African American studies was established because students protested and sat in on president's offices and other administrative buildings. We would probably not have the tradition of African American studies if it were not for that. The black middle class was made possible by the sacrifices and struggles of those during the 1960s and prior. So I think that, you know, I'm saying a few things. One is the importance of telling the truth about how, while certain things have changed dramatically, so many other things have either stayed the same or even worsened. 
because we know that as the black middle class rose and as the black political leadership class rose, 1972, we have the Gary Convention where hundreds of black elected officials and activists and black leaders go to Gary, Indiana to strategize how to take over cities and other um, you know, governmental entities in terms of black power in the electoral space. While that was happening, we have a, a war on drugs that is being established and we have the, you know, the mushrooming of the police state. <laughs> These were happening simultaneously. We also had deindustrialization. So the factory jobs, the, 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 you know, in Detroit, you know, places that were automotive sort of uh, engines and, and bastions, all of these jobs are going to China and they're going to, you know, the capitalists are searching far and wide for the cheapest forms of labor. I think we need to tell a broader story about African-American life that isn't simply the fairy tale of we began with the tragedy of slavery and we ended with the triumph of Barack Obama. And are there examples where we should model particular constituencies of black political leadership that have elevated the quality of life of black and brown people? Part of the challenge for activists, for progressives, um, for folks who are truly trying to think about transformative change is to not allow the necessary critiques of Trump to drown out the necessary critiques of liberalism, of black politicians, and of other folks who are sort of seemingly progressive, but in terms of their actual politics and policies are not. And so that's difficult to do in certain ways because you have all this racist vitriol that are coming from people like you know, Obama, who is saying, you know, this community is rat infested and things like that. So for those of us who come from those communities or those of us who have sympathy with those communities, you know, the reaction is to say, no, 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 you know, that's racism. That's, but at the same time, we don't want to let that block the important critique of the leadership within that city itself. So, I mean, we think about the Baltimore rebellion, for example, that was a black city, a, a black city through and through. The, the almost entire political leadership class was black. And Freddie Gray's spine was severed by the Baltimore Police Department in 2015 in a primarily black city. That was a little different than Ferguson, but it's not unfamiliar. Um, some of the more brutal police departments in the country are in cities that have large black populations and a lot of black elected officials. Um, so I think on the one hand, we have to just make sure that we tell the whole truth. I mean, I said earlier about under Obama's presidency, under even uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, we see the expansion of the carceral state. We see the bailing out of businesses in the 2008 crisis, but we see that on smaller levels as well. I live in Newark, New Jersey, for example. And here in Newark, um, it's an interesting situation, um, but I just want to point out something specific. So in the heat of the defund the police campaigns, uh, we have a mayor who calls defunding the police a bourgeois liberal reform. And we see the administration framing the protests here in Newark as a white thing or a suburban thing, not having its roots in the community itself. And a part of what that's doing is trying to stand in the way of a serious challenge against the police. And let me say this, a police force that's still under a consent decree. 
Newark has had a black mayor since 1970, Kenneth Gibson. We've had a black mayor for 50 years. And 50 years later, we have a mayor who's also the son of the activist poet, Amiri Baraka, who's calling defunding the police a bourgeois liberal reform and calling white people from the suburbs who are coming to Newark to protest basically outside agitators, which of course is racist rhetoric that grows out of the 1960s when people were saying, Dr. King shouldn't come into here because you're an outside agitator. So what does it mean for white supremacy to obtain in the midst of black political leadership? Um, so I can speak a little bit more uh, precisely to that question in terms of models. Um, I don't want to pretend to be able to speak sort of expansively about it, but I think we can look at places like Jackson, Mississippi, um, where you see experiments, for example, in co-ops and different kind of economic models that are not built on exploitation. And I think that's extremely important. I think on the sort of council level, you see some uh, really interesting things happening, even with you know, prosecutor races, which I think can be quite limited. But yeah, I think there's fragments happening across the country that other people can speak better to than I can. But I do think that it's important, like I said, to make sure that we're able to critique the Democratic Party establishment, to make sure that we're able to critique Black politicians, as well as the Donald Trumps, as well as, you know, the folks who are loud racist. And we need to do that at the same time um, and tell the truth yeah. about Black people. I think that's really helpful. And I just think I just wonder if you think that we're afraid of um, as a society and and as a a, a press um, of of kind of going there of making that um, kind of differentiation of what it meant to be a civil rights icon and voting rights advocate and then what it means to provide the economic justice that has been missing in the years since MLK's death. I mean, even the voice for legislative goals that could be legitimized through, you know, real, real reform. There was the generation that fought for voting rights, but that generation was never really able to secure economic justice. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to tell the entire truth, even with John Lewis. I mean, in many ways, before the Edmund Pettus Bridge incident, you know, um, or, in, you know, in the span of his younger career, you know, was his speech on the March on Washington, you know, but that speech wasn't written by him, at least not large parts of it. <laughs> and so he was a part of a larger group called SNCC, which was pushing not only for voting rights to be, um, to be true to what they were doing, but they were pushing for something much more expansive. They were establishing freedom schools. They were thinking about democracy in a much more extensive sense. But um, I think what you're saying is extremely important. And I think that there are things that were left behind during the 1960s movement and another movement that people are picking up on. So we literally have a poor people's campaign today that Reverend Barber and others have been organizing for quite some time. And of course that stands in the tradition of the Poor People's Campaign that Dr. King was organizing. You know, I think that's extremely important. I think that the co-op models that we see in terms of mutual aid societies, all of that comes out of 
the vestiges even of slavery. So even though things didn't always impact institutional change on a policy level or on a governmental level, it's still remarkable to see how activists and freedom fighters have taken those pieces and made sure they stayed alive in the fight for economic justice in this country. When you think about even Bernie Sanders' campaign, Part of what was exciting about Bernie Sanders' campaign was despite the stories that it was some Bernie bro campaign, there was a lot of young people and young people of color, including, including Latinx communities, who were rallying around him in large part because his campaign made a lot of sense for people who are struggling economically and who are saddled with student debt and who do not have health care. So I think that there are examples um, across racial lines where you see activist organizers and even some presidential campaigns like Bernie Sanders be able to mobilize and organize across race around this issue of class and economic justice. Um, and people are very excited about it. But like the campaign, you see the Democratic Party establishment and other folks who are gatekeepers of the status quo continue to quail let, and try let, to undermine those efforts. And Niall, let me ask you as a final question. It's not just those gatekeepers because there were there was another cohort of gatekeepers and they were the citizens themselves in South Carolina and in many other states in this past election cycle who seem to be disconnected, at least in their electoral behavior, from the argument that you're making. And this this is precisely what I think describes this chasm between the Lewis generation and the Cummings generation and this next up and coming and acting and protesting generation. But it wasn't in the case of the Democratic primary pre-pandemic. It, it, and, and who knows if that would be the case post-pandemic if the votes had happened subsequently. But those gatekeepers were really the voters, of, the black voters of South Carolina and, and, and a few other states that stood behind Joe Biden. And so I just, can you help explain what appears? Again, it's just the appearance of a disconnect between the way older black communities are reacting to the political status quo and the people who you say were involved in this in the Sanders campaign. Sure, I mean, <clears throat> there's a reason why Black Lives Matter emerged under the tenure of the first black president of the United States of America in part because there's a deep disillusionment with the promises of civil rights legislation and the realities of black and racial oppression in real time, especially with the young people who voted for Obama. So I think that is in many ways the heart of part of the, part of the difference. So you have certain older black people who, you know, were able to potentially make it into the middle class, potentially buy a home, potentially own some property, maybe get some level of education. And now you have a younger generation who's experienced more war and more debt than any other generation in American history, who watched Black death go viral under the first Black president of the United States. And so this is a, you know, it, it makes sense that you would have a difference between how a particular generation is thinking about electoral politics and its relationship to the Democratic Party and the younger generation, but also even those who are voting for a Joe Biden or others, 
a part of it is that we've been captured electorally. You know, there's a, there's a kind of electoral capture where, where someone like Bernie Sanders, who's not seen as at least a traditional Democrat in many ways not, um, is not seen as someone who's on the side of Black people. So Joe Biden has a particular familiarity with Black people, at least that's what he sells, you know, in a way that Bernie Sanders does not. And so I think that's another way where you see a comfortability from older Black voters with the Democratic Party and someone like Joe Biden, you know, seems like a safer option for folks who want to more or less keep the status quo. So, I mean, I would agree in that sense. It's not simply Black political leaders who are guardians of the status quo. Although we did see Black political leaders come out and support Joe Biden, and who knows how much of an influence that had on Black voters. So that's also an important part of the narrative. But I would agree, there's also these elements within a Black middle class uh, and otherwise who are, you know, sort of stuck, I think, in a, in a mentality that, you know, the Democratic Party is all we have. And I think that you have younger people showing that it can't be all we have and that they're creating alternative ways of thinking about building, you know, and transforming community. Now for, thank you for joining me as a preview of our television conversation that will appear in the coming weeks. Um, you are an amazing scholar, thought leader, uh, and minister, and we appreciate your insights today. Thank you for having me. I had a great time.